the most successful entrepreneurs do things scared. So you can be confident and scared at the same time. And I had to learn that I could be both and still be awkward in that internal struggle um, and still serve people in a big way. And so I think lack of courage and lack of confidence is the Achilles heel of business owners, not just in their current. Are you struggling to connect with your audience in a more meaningful way? Do you wish there was a way to remain authentic to your brand while also expanding and growing your business over time? Have you ever experienced a major setback and wondered if you could ever bounce back from it? Well, if you're an entrepreneur who is looking to be seen, heard, and paid, then you are going to love our guest today, Jennifer Kim. What really blows me away about Jen is that she really understands entrepreneurs' challenges because she's been in our shoes. In fact, she built a retail business and became a millionaire at 32, only to lose it all in the recession two years later. But that didn't stop her. In fact, it inspired her to start over again. She developed a strategy that works and is now the successful owner of $3 million brand building businesses and the mother of three. Now, before we get into all of Jen's amazingness, I want to make sure to give a shout out to our reviewer this week, and that's Alicia. And she says, I just wanted to say thank you so much for being brave and sharing yourself with the world. I started in fashion photography and moved to LA a few years back. Then my marriage brought me back home to Alaska. Long story short, I was heartbroken and have felt all kinds of defeated after moving back home and working in an industry that I'm not in love with. I'm slowly redefining my goals and figuring out how to share myself again after falling off the internet. It's been hard, but I'm ready to put in the work and make this thing happen. Finding your podcast has truly been a lifesaver. Thank you so much. Alicia from Alaska. Well, thank you so much, Alicia, for your vulnerability and showing up and sharing yourself with the world. I love to hear your feedback as well as all of your feedback. So I want to know, have you subscribed to the Influencer Podcast and given us a review yet? Well, if not, I would be so honored if you would do so, so I can highlight your feedback in an upcoming episode. It's pretty simple. If you're on iTunes, all you got to do is hit that subscribe button and then hit the review button. Same thing with Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever you may be tuning in on. It's really easy to find those two things so we can hear what you have to say about our amazing show. Now, also, I want to make sure that you screenshot today's episode on your phone and tag me over on Instagram stories. You know that I love to hang out there. I'm at Joel Solomon and our guest today at Jenny Kim, K-E-M, and hashtag the influencer podcast to let us both know that you're joining in today and let us know your biggest takeaway from today's episode, because then we're going to screenshot that and share that with our amazing communities as well. And I want to also make sure that if you don't know, we We have an awesome Influencer Podcast Facebook community that gives you daily tips on how to uplevel your business. You get to chat with my team and other listeners and really get a lot of questions that kind of happen after the podcast episode answered. So make sure to visit facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash the Influencer Podcast to be a part of this wonderful community. Welcome to the Influencer Podcast. I'm your host, Julie Solomon, a marketing strategist, brand building expert, speaker, and New York Times bestselling publicist. This is where I take you behind the scenes with today's top influencers, industry insiders, and entrepreneurs as they share step-by-step strategies to help you turn your online dreams into a purposeful and profitable business. Hello, Jen Kim. It is so awesome to have you with us today. 
Julie, thank you so much for having me. I'm pumped for this conversation. I am too. And it's so fun. Like for, for those listening, you may know, um, I do these in like this little tiny room in my house. So I don't normally get to be with the person when we're having a conversation, but you and I were just bumping elbows. Like a few nights ago, we got to be at a dinner together and got to meet connect, which was incredible. And literally bumping elbows because we're sitting right next to each other, (laughs) eating a great meal with other cool people um, in San Diego. So I'm, and we was a surprise even when we got seated next to each other. So I think this is serendipity. It's pretty cool. It is. It was total kismet and was supposed to happen. Um, And I'm so excited for you to be here today. Um, For those who don't know who Jen Kim is, you are missing out because Mm -hmm. um, she's incredible. And we're going to talk about why she is so incredible today. But um, I know that you're in San Francisco and you're a marketing expert, but that kind of doesn't really like exactly define what you do. I'm trying to look for the word. It's, it's a whole lot of things. So let's just dive into it with, with who you are. Tell us a little bit about your journey um, and how you got into the realm of marketing that you, that you do so beautifully. Thank you. Well, it is definitely a journey. I think that's the best word to describe it, but I think that's what all of us founders slash entrepreneurs slash business owners are on, right? It's like, we're looking for this nebulous point B, but the truth is entrepreneurship is just a series of point A's that we're recreating at every step. And so I tell people all the time in my story, it's, you know, it's been now 22 years that I've been building brands and helping companies and, and business owners get seen, heard, and paid, um, using whatever awesome products and services that they have to give to the world. But my journey really started out in the, in the corporate world first. I, I didn't have any desires to be an entrepreneur, to be honest with you, Julie. I, I did the good Asian girl thing I say, cause I'm Asian, I'm Filipino. And, you know, I went to school and I thought, okay, I'm going to find a job with a great company. And, um, I did that actually for 12 years before I jumped the ledge and moved into starting my own business. But, you know, there's a lot of winding yarn there that we can unpack as we chat through this. But the the bottom line is when I took the step into entrepreneurship, I knew that the thing that I could do is help pick winners. That's one of my superpower in terms of a product or a service that actually people want. And so I knew that I could take that skill that I had done in the corporate world and bring it into both my consulting company, as well as now I also have a campus for founders and entrepreneurs that help them utilize those brand strategies from bigger companies and apply that to their business so that they can not just get more high impact, but obviously increase their revenues and be known as that brand that people want to work with or buy from. So it's, I've seen both hemispheres is my point, Julie, like I've been in the corporate world and did that for a living. And then in the entrepreneurial world, that's what I do for a living in my own business. And I think that gives me an advantage because I see both sides and, um, it allows me to pivot accordingly. So. Mm, I love that. And I want to talk a little bit about the master brand method, because I know that that's what you use when it comes to digital strategy with Mm -hmm. coaching. So walk us through what that is. Mm -hmm. So the master brand method is a proprietary framework that my company developed since it's been around for about 12 years since I left the corporate world. And it's the five pillars of actually building a brand that gets seen, heard, and paid. And so those five pillars are archetypes, audience, aesthetics, 
activation and amplification. And so whenever we're working with a brand or a company, we use this method to filter what the messaging and the associated aesthetics and machines, I call them, that carry the message. In this case, a lot of times we the, the two machines that we help founders especially work on are both the online components, that digital piece, and what social media and other digital components they need to be focusing on for their particular brand. And then also the offline components, because part of what I think is missing a lot, in Julie, in the online marketing world right now, in social media, is the advantage that brands have using an analog strategy in addition to their digital strategy. So there's a digital piece you know, that we all know about, um, and then there's the analog strategy that is using events or using um, in-person activations, we call them, to create more not just acquisition of people or clients, but actually retaining and creating what we call an ambassador army for your brand that spreads the good word. And so I would say that if you're a coach or you're a service provider right now and you're not doing any analog slash offline things in your business, it's something you might want to take a look at because those that are doing that now are going to have a big advantage in the next few years um, as people crave more and more connection because digital has given us excellent ways to stand up a company, serve more people, go global, et cetera. But the flip side, because everything has duality, right? The flip side of that is that people are feeling lonely, isolated, not feeling as connected to like-minded people. Um, And so brands that do both really have an advantage. And that's something that we look at when we work with service providers specifically, because coaches and consultants, we're in the business of helping people increase whatever they're looking to increase, right? Or, or eliminate. And, um, those that actually use, (laughs) um, old school things like cell phones, telephones, um, (laughs) things like this, like zoom, pigeons, pigeons, whatever. Actually, what's interesting is that's where those people are making the most revenue. And I think that in the digital world, it's also created a, a little bit of a, of a fantasy that only digital can, make you money, it can, but I think that if you, you are a service provider, there's a, there's a case for going analog as well. Mm. And so what kind of walk us through a little bit of that, um, of what would be steps, right? Like actionable steps, if someone wanted to kind of dive a little bit more into that, because we know the importance of it, but if they're missing that how piece. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So specifically around the analog or the offline piece? Exactly. Okay. Because I think that a lot of times people either get confused or they don't really see the value in both, if you will. Mm-hmm. I think that, okay, so first let's just say that I think a lot of the reasons people don't do it is because they feel it's expensive, right? So, and it, it's true to put on, let's say a workshop or put on a conference or to put on even a demonstration of your products or services feels like there's more expense than there is, um, you know, than it's worth, right? When you could instead grow your social media following or use paid advertising, right? To attract your audience. Again, I don't think that digital or analog is better or worse. Okay. I think that a mix, especially if you're in the consultant or services industry or coaching industry, this is important. So the how, um, so first of all, 
if you were to look at how much you spend on acquisition, if you're looking to how much are you spending on, let's say Facebook ads or Instagram ads or, you know, any of that. And then you look at what the cost of doing something in person is. It's pretty similar to be honest with you. Part of the problem with doing in-person events is that there's no goal in mind. Instead, it's more what I call a vanity event. There are a lot of vanity Mm -hmm. events that happen. Mm -hmm. Julie, so meaning like, okay, great. You want your brand to be seen and known as legitimate, right? And an authority, but you just do it for that. And therefore you lose a ton of money, right? And then you want, and it's, and putting on event is work, right? There's a lot of, there are humans that have to do the work. And so there are a lot of reasons why not to do it, but two reasons to do it. And I'll get into the how after I explain this context is when people see that you're the real deal in person, especially with, frankly, the fact that, you know, digital, again, it's, it's great, but on the flip side of it, I call online, I call online marketing and social media, the new subprime loan. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is anybody can go online, Mm -hmm. learn a little bit of marketing and then market themselves and then create a product. And that causes problems now for consumers because now they're overstimulated with um, you know, what they're looking at. And they want to make sure they're choosing the right person to work with or the right company to work with. So that's the advantage of having what I call a belly-to-belly conversation with your audience, which that means in person having a conversation with them. So that's a reason to do it. And the second reason is it actually shows that if you're willing to do an analog piece that you, you're invested You know what I mean? You're invested in your business. So how to do that? First, you have to begin with the end in mind. So again, the goal is not to create a vanity offline activation. So it's not to create an event so that you can make it look all pretty and then you give them great value, but it costs you so much money. You have to scramble to do another webinar or something to make money on the back end. Okay. The goal of a a well-produced offline activation is that you're going to sell your best offer in it and sell it in a way that creates extreme value. So those that create offline activations always say, what's the offer you're going to make in the room? And some people say, oh gosh, I don't want to be that salesy person, Jen, right? I don't want to, I don't want to sell something at my event. I want people to feel served. And I always say there is a way to do that that doesn't feel salesy In fact, what it feels like if you don't offer them something is they got actually gypped, meaning, okay, you gave me all this value and now you're going to let me walk out of here and not do anything with the value that I got. Because I always say, if you do an offline activation, the worst part for your audience uh, when they leave is re-entry into the real world. (laughs) And us as coaches, (laughs) consultants, and leaders we have to prevent that burn through like the space shuttle, right? Because when they leave an incredible experience and then they go back to the real world and they don't have tools and solutions to help support them in that, we're actually screwing them over, you know? And so back to the how, you want to start and design your event, your workshop, your demonstration, whatever that looks like with the offer first. You don't do the agenda first. You don't do the, should I have like beautiful chair covers on the conference seats first? You actually don't even look at logistics first. Your first step is what is the offer you're going to make first, okay? Then you design everything around the offer. So here's the offer. Let's say um, let's say you have a high-ticket coaching package, right? And you know that you're looking to enroll 25 people into it for the year, right? 
Well, great. So now you know what the offer is. You know what the goal is. So now you know how many people you have to put in seats in the room. And then you also know how to build your agenda from that. And so your agenda comes from the offer, not vice versa. So what are the things inside of your agenda that can support why they need to do something after they leave, right? And not in a manipulative, icky way, in a way that truly serves their understanding of your process or your framework. So for example, for me, I have the master brand method. So whenever we do an offline activation for our campus, we absolutely use our framework, that those five pillars that I mentioned earlier. And that's the content because it serves the offer that's going to happen in the room. But it feels really elegant and non-icky because it's just a you know next step. And so when you're designing your event, if you do it that way first, then you design the aesthetics. So you know, how do you want the room to look? How do you want it to feel? Um, how does that line up with your brand online? Is there congruence? So we actually do design and aesthetics third, not first and second. First and second is offer, then the process or framework that we're teaching, which is the value that we're giving in the room, then third is design. And so I think our approach is very different than a lot of other people. Um, and I'm excited that I'm talking about it publicly on your amazing podcast because a lot of people don't have access to what I'm sharing. So it's kind of exciting. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's so amazing that you just broke it down like that. And I mean, for anyone who, who may be listening, who have, they haven't even gotten into the, you know, live of live event, live workshop, whatever you want to call it space. I mean, like you just gave such a phenomenal framework of like, you don't build it really around. Cause I think a lot of times we think like the experience, right. Mm -hmm. But really the experience is like, what are they going to experience once they leave that event? Like, yes. how are you really going to change their lives? Yes. That goes back to the offer. And so I think that a lot of times we get, we get hung up on like, you know, what's, what is it going to look like? You know, uh, what, what information am I going to be sharing instead of really thinking about what results am I going to be giving them? Mm-hmm. So I the love value that. comes from results. The exactly. value comes from results. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's offer value design. Yes. I love that. That's amazing. Um, my friends, have you ever thought that you have done the hard part? You have started your business and you have taken that leap from belief into really stepping out and claiming a vision for yourself. But you know that if you want to make money doing what you love, you need other support. You need to grow. You need to scale. You need a marketing strategy. You need a lot of this stuff. Now, of course, I talk so much about these things, right? Like how to identify your target audience, where to find them, which marketing channels to focus on. So you're really making the most out of your budget. And of course, how to use things like data to set goals. But there's another great podcast that I love out there that also talks about this stuff. And it's called This is Small Business. This is Small Business, an original podcast from Amazon, answers so many of these kinds of questions. Whether you're dreaming of starting your business or you're looking to take a part-time side hustle full-time, or maybe you're a few years in and you're ready to scale. This is Small Business is going to give you the practical tips that you can start using today. And I know that if you love these topics on my podcast, you're going to love them on this one too. Make sure to follow This is Small Business on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so you don't miss these fantastic episodes. And a big thanks to This is Small Business business for sponsoring the show. Okay. So I want to talk a little bit about challenges, um, that actually kind of play into why people may not think about what we just talked about in that way that you had mentioned to me that a challenge that you see a lot of entrepreneurs, influencers, and business owners kind of go through. And one that you actually faced yourself as a business owner, it's really having the courage to double down on yourself and really go all in as you. 
Mm-hmm. I would love for you to kind of explore that and define that a little bit more for us and like how you've been able to work with that throughout your own journey. Yeah. I mean, I think it's so interesting because we get so stuck in our own head and fears that we forget that I believe, and I can only base that on obviously my own journey and then my, my friends and, and colleagues in the business. I think that the most successful entrepreneurs do things scared. So you can be confident and scared at the same time. And I had to learn that I could be both and still be awkward in that internal struggle um, and still serve people in a big way. And so I think lack of courage and lack of confidence is the Achilles heel of business owners, not just in their current phase of business, but where they're wanting to evolve to. And I think that, you know, what's that saying? You know, you reach your next level, you hit your next devil, right? Next level, next devil. So every time we hit a milestone or an evolution, or maybe we get discovered more, or we become a little bit more known in the industry, and then we get momentum under it. The truth is, is that actually the demons and the the extra noise between our ears, a lot of times becomes louder, not softer. And so for anyone listening to the podcast, whether you're in the beginning phases or you're in a midpoint, or you're really just crushing it already in your business, I think that 99% of the people listening would agree that we're facing that fear, every single one of us every day, frankly. Um, but the key is, is not to get paralyzed by it. The key is, um, one of the things that I say is action activates the dream, right? So one of the ways that I trick my tricky mind around, um, getting stuff out there is doing it without preparation, which is very hard for me because I'm, I'm known for strategy. I'm known for, um, you know, having a plan. And the truth is, is that anything I've ever really wanted to put out there, I overplanned, <laughs> I overanalyzed because we want our precious babies that we make in our mind to be perfect. Right. And so, um, I think that the biggest problem is that people think they have to be ready in order to become authorities or they have to be ready to grow their business. And what I say is you need to stay ready. (laughs) So being ready versus staying ready is the distinction that I have is like being able to spot that the marketplace needs a certain thing and being able to spot that you have the thing that the marketplace has. You have to be willing to put yourself in that place of saying, I can help solve that as soon as you spot it versus waiting and overanalyzing and the only reason you, you waited and overanalyzed is because you actually have lacked courage somewhere. And so that's the thing I always go back to. Am I, do I have the, you know, what am I doing every day to flex my courage? And part of flexing my courage, just like going into the gym and working on the muscles inside your body to be stronger or whatever your fitness goals are. I think that every single day we are entering the entrepreneurial gym. You know, we're going in, we got to flex our muscles. And the way to do that is actually to be seen and be heard and be willing to make offers. And that takes courage. And so for me, how I've overcome that, and I still overcome that is I've learned that testing and, 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 um, you know, experimenting is part of my process towards eliminating things that don't work faster. And then I see that the nugget that remains after all of that washes away is the gold 
that I've been digging for. And that's what also gets my company, you know, paid. And so, um, it's something I'm working on all the time. And when I, and I also think that in the entrepreneurial world, if I can be really transparent, I think that there's a big problem around not just mindset. I'll go deeper than that. I think that there's a lot of shame around needing therapy or extra support, whether it's a therapist, whether it's wellness practitioners, whether it's a holistic means, whatever. I think that one of the issues that business owners face is they don't pay attention to the other ways they need to keep their mind right. Because our mind, <laughs> as entrepreneurs, we are like, we're crazy. And that's a good thing. You know what I mean? We, we've, we've taken the big, bold move to do something different. And so our mind needs extra support. Um, and so for me, I think one of the biggest challenges is that um, entrepreneurs aren't getting enough support or there's shame around, Hey, I have a therapist or, Hey, I have a coach, you know, a life coach or, Hey, I have, um, you know, somebody who's helping me, um, align the other parts of my life that they don't fall apart. I think that we haven't given enough credence to some of the most successful people we admire. It's not just that they made a lot of money. We really admire the people that are trying to do, um, the things that actually make them successful in life. And, and I've experienced that because my first time that I tell people all the time that, um, my life has two hemispheres, um, my life before I knew my values and my life after. And when I, before I knew the values that I really held dear to me and operated from that place, I basically destroyed my first marriage. I lost my first business in an epic fiery way and I lost a lot of relationships with friends because I didn't know how to be in that and be successful, quote unquote, successful at the same time. And once I figured out what my values were, I started to shift and filter everything through that and got the help I needed to support me so that I could lead. And so that's my long answer to your very <laughs> short question. No, that was amazing. I love that. Um, and thank you for sharing that. I think a lot of people can resonate with that. And um, there's probably a lot of like me too's popping up um, with all of that because there's a lot there. And it it also goes into a little bit of, because you, when you were talking about like what you just said of there was kind of like your your, your, your pre, like you, you kind of look at your life, if you will, in like two different stages. I wanted to talk about your, the mistake that you had mentioned to me. Cause I, I love to talk about what are the challenges and mistakes and how have you overcome them in your business? And, um, mm-hmm. the courage piece kind of pops up for me. Um, you shared that your biggest mistake kind of happened in two, 2008 during the recession. Can you share a little bit about what that was and, and how that how that kind of not only navigated you from a business standpoint, but really navigated you in, into stepping into this to this new phase of, of how you live your life and, and the courage that you have to show up every day and live your dreams and do what you do. Yeah. So 2008, so let's just backtrack two years before then. And uh, 2006 was the year that I decided to leave my very high paying job as a marketing executive for one of the biggest technology companies in the world. And I left, the short story is I left because I found out after implementing one of the biggest projects they'd ever had very successfully, I found out that my male counterpart was making a hundred thousand dollars more than me and was set up to be promoted to become CMO. And, um, at that moment, Julie, I figured out, oh, okay. So I really don't have full control over my life. 
you know, I thought I did because I had a fancy car with a parking spot that had my name on it. I had, you know, a $250,000 salary with a bonus that you sure bet we made every year because my team liked to get their bonus. And I had a lot of what I call the ego accolades, especially as a young girl, woman who had climbed the corporate ladder pretty quickly. And the way that I did that, just a little tip, um, is I learned from a mentor early on in my career that if you want to go quickly, the only shortcut is to take the things on that nobody else wants to do. And I think that's true in the corporate world. And I think that's true in entrepreneurship back to courage, right? It's like, if you do the things that other people don't want to do, you'll start to get seen, heard, and paid faster. And so when I figured out that what I call now my values were being violated in that moment, when I found out that no matter how hard I worked and no matter the results that I created, that there was still a system or a process that wasn't serving me, right? And I don't blame the guy who got the promotion because he's actually still a great friend of mine. And he, we laugh all the time when we talk, you know, 12 years later that, He's like, wow, I wish I had the, I wish I had the courage that you had to leave. And I was like, I felt like in that moment, Julie, I had no choice because I looked at my life and I I had a horrible relationship with my husband. I felt like I wasn't, I was not being the greatest mom to my kids. If I can be really transparent, I worked so much at that company that I, you know, worked really late nights. And I said, oh my God, I have zero control over my my life. And what I call that is I had no autonomy. I had no autonomy over my life. My life was governed by other forces. And I allowed that. And I allowed the evidence of quote unquote, having a great career be enough for me. And until I I finally got knocked in the head um, with the rock called inequity, um, I made a nine month plan and I started my own business and I started this business. Here's what's crazy. I went from corporate executive building brands and launching big products, high technology products to opening an underwear store. Okay. And the reason I opened an underwear store is because I didn't know what I wanted to do, Julie. It's so funny because I think a lot of people who are entrepreneurs today, they want to start something brand new and they just do it because Oh, I want to start something new. For me, it was, I didn't even think, Hey, maybe I should be a brand consultant or open up a consulting company. I actually was like, I honestly don't know what I'm going to do, but I know what works and what works is finding a winner. And what I mean by a winner is what is the market want right now? And at the time I was living in Hawaii and Hawaii didn't have a Victoria's secret. And I was on all these business trips and going, um, especially to Texas where our headquarters for the company was. And I would notice something that was a common denominator in every woman's onboard carry-on. And that was a pink bag with stripes with the Victoria's Secret bag. And I was like, oh my God, it's true. Basically, if you live in Hawaii, you have to go to the mainland, we call it, right? To get underwear. And I said, that's it. That's the winning idea. Now, I didn't have any background in retail. <laughs> I knew I, I liked to shop, <laughs> but I didn't have a business background in retail. And this is going to add to when I tell you what my biggest challenge was, because let's just put it this way. The minute I decided to bet on that idea, because I could see that the market was demanding it, I went all in. I put a second mortgage on my house. I created a nine-month exit plan for my, for my company, and I went all in. And... In less than a year, 
Julie, we were doing over $10 million in business. That's insane. And insane. And I couldn't believe it because I really, it's kind of like when you fall into something, but here's, I had to honor the fact, Julie, that actually it wasn't a mistake that that happened because I did, I was using my gifts, talents, and skills that I had had in the corporate world, right? By spotting a winner, building a plan to get there and then going all in. But I, as an entrepreneur, all of a sudden I forgot that that was actually a process or a framework that I used. And so anyway, between 2006 and 2000, mid 2007, we were, we were killing it. We're crushing it. I mean, I opened up, you know, four other stores. I was on my fifth star opening and I was planning on going global with it. I was actually going to go overseas, Julie, because Hawaii, where I lived is the Pacific Rim and Victoria's Secret wasn't a global brand. A lot of people don't know that, but back in 2006, Victoria's Secret was not overseas. It was only in the continental U.S. In fact, people, Victoria's Secret, if you read their their shareholder filings, which I did because it's part of researching when you want to build something big, okay, they considered Hawaii and Alaska to be international locations. So I was like, oh, this is perfect. Because when they do find out that we have wallet share, I'll be here already and I'll be the local choice. So I already even knew I wasn't even nervous that they came. Um, and so we grew rapidly and then something called, and for those of you who are familiar with what was happening in the U S economy in 2000, 2008, that was the, that was the great recession, right? It was one of the lowest points in our economy. And I did not listen to both my intuition and my financial advisor at the time, because we were growing so rapidly. We had so much momentum and I thought my little solopreneur, Jen, who I had a great team, but I didn't have the capital or the financial reserves to get through a storm like that. In fact, nobody did. If, if you recall at that time, the biggest companies, that was the whole wall street debacle, right? Where everybody got bailed out. But if you were a small business owner or an entrepreneur, you didn't have the power or the influence that Wall Street does. And so unless you had, you're rolling in millions and millions of dollars, which by the way, even though by that point, I was a multi-eight-figure company, it was inventory-based, right? Like I had a store, I had sales of that, but my profit margin was about 22%. And I didn't have enough financial reserves and my financial, because also I was in all this real estate stuff. Bottom line is I didn't listen. And what felt like being on a high for so long then turned into the, like we were, we couldn't keep inventory in stock for, for years and the two years that we were, we were rolling. And then all of a sudden, nobody was coming in the store. I mean, nobody, we would have days where it was a complete ghost town. In fact, Julie, like to this day, I had a lot of friends who had retail companies um, back then and not one of them is not just in retail anymore, but they're not even entrepreneurs anymore because it broke them so mm. bad in spirit. And so when I talk about my biggest challenge, I, that was it because I went from being so proud of the fact that I'd actually escaped the nine to five, right. That I had done something that would give me more autonomy, but here's the crazy part. I actually created something that gave me no autonomy. Again, it caged me just like my job did. Oh, that's huge. And I didn't know better right? It was huge. It was like, I had built something that on the surface looked so exciting, but I realized, whoa, I actually built a cage and even a more dangerous cage 
for myself than even the corporate job had done to me. But I needed to learn that lesson in 2008 and lose everything. Literally, Julie, I, I lost not just my company, but I lost my house. I lost my marriage. And in that 90 day period, I even lost my greatest mentor in my life, which was my grandmother who let me move in with her when my company and my house, cause everything came tumbling down, you know, and I was in the lowest point of my life. And, but this reflection and looking back as it all was, and it's still, it's like scar tissue when I talk about it, it still stings. Um, it still burns a little, I need that because I always reflect back on that lesson to now how I build brands and also work on behalf of the companies we work with in a way that never allows me to be so, um, so, so, um, like have those blinders on. I have these blinders on. It was just about what I was good at, but I wasn't looking at all the other factors or listening to the advisors that I had around me. Cause I was, so there is also like the whole idea of betting on yourself fully Part of betting on yourself is investing in the right support and advice and listening and being coachable, right? And so these two lessons are things that I take forward and it's really helped me increase my life in such dramatic ways. And I can tell you now, I still run a multi-eight-figure company, except my profit margins are a lot bigger and I am not in the cage anymore because I've built an incredible team and I focus more on my genius and reinvested in making sure that I have a strong capital bench, meaning my financial bench, as well as having great people on my team to support that vision. So I had to learn that to build this, you know what I mean? So. Yeah. I'm just, I'm like pausing. Cause that was just so great. Such an amazing story <laughs> and just so honest and vulnerable. And, and then now look where you are now. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, you, you, have a new amazing thriving business. It's it's really it goes back to courage and mindset of like you could have easily mm-hmm. just quit, you know, because it broke you so bad and just not be an entrepreneur anymore, go back to corporate America, go back to whatever other cage that felt familiar. Or you could take it to that next step. So share with us a little bit about, you know, how were you able to go from there to what you do today mm-hmm. and share a little bit about about what you do and and how you know, those listening could potentially even align with you or work with you or, or learn more from you? Yeah. I mean, so first of all, in that 90 day period, it was about three, three to four months after. And I, 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 I'm just going to be completely honest. I, I literally sat on my porch, my grandmother's porch, and I watched the cars go by. And if you really knew me, Julie, like anybody, all of my good friends would tell you that is not Jen Kemp. You know, I'm, I've always been the person who finds a solution. And those four, three to four months, I was vacant is how I would describe it. Like just really, really vacant. And I'm going to be real. Um, for me, this goes back to what I said about values. Remember I said that the value of autonomy, I realized after I had that breakdown at corporate, well, the value of um, connection and the value of what I brought in the world actually came from a moment sitting on that porch. And my daughter, who was 10 at the time, she came outside and she put her hand on my shoulder and she said, mommy, you're Jen Kim. It's time to wake up now. And sometimes I tell people like that moment or the people that are trying to help you, sometimes they come in the most untraditional ways. Like here was a 10 year old who had more wisdom in her body than I could even give to myself at the moment when I felt so broken. And 
when I saw her and she did that for me, I, I, I felt like it, it, the moment feels so potent, Julie, I can feel it right now. I can see myself in that space and immediately the answer started flowing in because I woke up a little bit and the, the, the answer was, what am I good at? You know, what, what, what made me even build this thing? What made me, what made me successful before? What were those elements and not just skills, but what were the ways that I had to think about things? And so for 30 days to answer your question, like, how did I pick myself up for 30 days after that? I realized, wait a minute, I'm really good at launching brands. <laughs> I'm really good at picking winners. What I wasn't good at, but I fixed was I wasn't good at the back end of the business, right? I wasn't good at the financial piece. I was good at making money, but not keeping my money. So I also identified the parts that I wasn't good at and said, if I wanted to build something next. Who do I need to help me with these things? Right. And so I went and I literally put my suit on and I walked the streets of downtown <laughs> um, and knocked on doors literally and said, Hey, I'm available to do some marketing consulting, some go-to-market brand planning, um, strategic planning, any of that. And I had old friends, obviously from the corporate world who were still in their jobs, thank God. And one of them gave me a chance. It was a $4,000 gig to do a brand report for them, to do some market research on uh, a product they wanted to launch to the marketplace. And from that $4,000 gig, I started to just take on more of those types of gigs. And I think that's the other thing about if you're a coach, a consultant, service-based provider, a lot of times we like, of course, we want to gain more leverage. We want to create a course. We want to create like group stuff. That's awesome. But there's nothing like good old fashioned working with people and getting a chunk of money, then reinvesting that and then reinvesting that and then getting more people to know about you and then to build more of a leveraged program. And that's what happened for me. And it's funny too, Julie, because one of my biggest clients to this day is that same company that I quit. And I was making $250,000 a year, but now I bill them $250,000 a month for my services and my company services, doing the same job I did for them as an employee. And I think a lot of service-based consultants don't, or coaches don't do that. They don't go back to that. And then I realized, wait a minute, you know, who's really not getting the benefit of this learning and this teaching that I've learned, not just in my life, but obviously in the business skills that I have, are entrepreneurs like me. I was getting a lot of questions from my friends. How did you do it? What are you doing? And I'm like, I'm really just using the same framework that I used in the corporate world. And I decided to just create a little program for it because people asked me to. And that was what happened with Master Brand. So I do have a program. It's called Master Brand. So if you're interested and you're a founder, a solopreneur, or even have a small, it doesn't matter if you have a small team or a big team, the foundational aspects of how to build a brand, not just a business, but a brand, because there's a difference. A business is the operation. Like, so the PL, the finances, et cetera, but a brand is all the elements of your business that create impact and influence the parties that you're looking to impact and influence. So it's who's on your team. Do they stand for the brand? Who's in your audience? What are the activation methods that you have? That's what a brand does versus just a business that runs the company. So if you're interested in that, we have, I created a campus. It's my third business since the first business. So I've started four companies 
Three of them are still in existence. That first one I mentioned was the one that went under uh, in 2008. And uh, we, help on, we help entrepreneurs and founders navigate their messaging, their storytelling, and the activation systems that they use to get seen, heard, and paid. So that's what I do now. And it's my greatest joy. Mm. And I especially love helping women, especially. I, have, I always tell people, I'm not against men. I love men, but I'm for women. And, um, because I, I believe that when women get wealthy, they, that's where the world's going to really, really shift because it's proven that women who are entrepreneurs who make money, 70% of them give back in a way to their community or causes that mean something to them over 30% of their male counterparts. And so I know that by what I'm doing to activate other women's brands, um, it allows us all to change the world in a very direct way, not even in an indirect way, because you can count on us to give back. So that's my big mission in the world now. It's very Mm -hmm. exciting. It is very exciting. And speaking of, um, of that, tell us a little bit about Finfluence. Ah, thank you for that great bridge. Well, yeah. yeah, So I recently, um, joined the podcasting world and, you know, I've been listening to your podcast for a while now, Julie, and just love how you give really actionable content and bring on great people. And I knew I had resisted, frankly, using, um, being like creating a podcast. And so recently I realized that all the things I know about business and about life as an ambitious woman, which is also partly my mission is that to take shame around ambition and women together, you know, um, I think it's cool that women are ambitious, the women that are ambitious and want more, I wanted to give them a spotlight and a platform to talk about the real stuff that keeps us from shining, uh, especially that stuff that I talked about, like especially the courage to show up and shine. And so Femfluence is a platform to help women get massively influential and grow their affluence. So it's about women getting affluent and influential. And so we started out with a podcast that's right now on iTunes and we hit number one in new and noteworthy in our category, which is very exciting. Um, and it's just me just telling the same honest stories that you and I have been able to scratch the surface on in this amazing podcast today. Um, and just talking about how to get there and choosing the path that works for you and not fully, um, depending on frameworks and formulas, but actually making those frameworks and formulas work for you rather than be you. And so, um, that's what that's all about. I'm very excited about it. So you can go to femfluence.com, F-E-M-M-E-F-L-U-E-N-C-E.com to pick your favorite podcasting um, medium and listen in. Yes. And it is amazing. Um, I highly recommend, I think the listeners of this podcast would absolutely love, would love that one. So there's my little nod to that too. Um, Well, Jen, thank you so much just for your story, for, you know, really coming out the gate with helping us with just I mean, to you, they may seem simple, but just really amazing gleams when it comes to kind of bringing more live events into your your business, your product letter, your product suite, whatever you want to call that, um, and how to do it the right way and sharing with us your journey and just reminding us of that courage and encouragement that we all need. Um, before we wrap this up, I want to ask you one last question. Um, what does influence mean to you? Mm. Well, to me, influence just means that you're helping, if you're doing it ethically, ethical influence to me means you're helping other people see who they can be. Mm, That's awesome. 
I'm like, that's a good one. I like it. Mm-hmm. Jen, where can we find you on social media, online, all those things? Awesome. Well, um, I love for people to follow me on Instagram. Instagram is my favorite place to be. Um, it's Jenny Kem, J E N N Y K E M. And then our FemFluence platform has its own IG, FemFluence underscore official. So we'd love, and it's just literally launched. So any support and follow, that's where you can keep up with all of the extra nuggets I plan on dropping around women's leadership and how to get seen, heard, and paid in an authentic way. Um, You can follow me there. Awesome. Thank you so much for spending time with us today and for giving us all of these great nuggets. I took notes. So I know that those listening took notes as well. Um, And if you're listening, of course, make sure to screenshot those episodes, um, today's episode, share them with Jen and I, so we can know what your biggest takeaway from today's episode was. I cannot wait to see those. And I know that Jen will be excited to see those as well. Me? Yes, absolutely. Thanks so much, Julie. Thank you. All right. That is it for today. Now, as you know, some of our best conversations actually happen after the show. So I want you to find me on Instagram, head on over to our Facebook group at the Influencer Podcast, and let me know your thoughts about today's show. All right. I will see you again, same time, same place next week.